Great. Well, I'd like to welcome everybody here uh, this evening. My name is Peter Trubowitz. Uh, I teach in the International Relations Department, and I'm the director of the new U.S. Center uh, at the LSC. And tonight's lecture is the first in a series of public lectures uh, that the U.S. Center has planned for um, this term and next term. Come on in. We've got some people coming in in the back. One of the things that the uh, Center seeks to do is foster um, creative thinking about um, American politics and uh, American society, and there are a number of different ways to do this. Uh, but one is to think about the United States in comparative context, to think about what the United States can learn from other nations, and importantly, think about what lessons the American experience um, offers in thinking about other political systems and political arrangements. Uh, as the title of tonight's lecture, uh, Lessons uh, for the Euro from America's Past, suggests we're going to be doing a little more of the latter uh, than the former, and uh, I'm happy to say we're in very good hands uh, with Professor Jeffrey Frieden. Jeff is the Stanfield Professor of International Peace at Harvard University before joining Harvard. He taught at uh, the University of California, Los Angeles, UCLA, uh, having received his PhD and his bachelor's. Um, at Columbia University. He's the author of six well-known books, some ten edited volumes, and dozens and dozens of articles and chapters ranging from exchange rate politics to international debt and development to foreign economic policy. His most recent book is Currency Politics, The Political Economy of Exchange Rate Policy. This is with Harvard, uh, 2015, uh, which, like so much of Jeff's work, um, uh, tries to lay bare the distributional consequences of currency policy decisions um, in Europe, uh, in Latin America, and the United States. Uh, Jeff has served on the Advisory Council of the Federal Reserve Bank uh, of Atlanta's America Center, the Steering Committee of the uh, International Political Economy Society, and as Acting Director of Harvard's Weatherhead Center for International Affairs. In fact, Jeff's done that four different times, which I suppose is another way of saying that Jeff moonlights as a fireman. Um, I should add here, too, that Jeff is no stranger to the LSE. I learned this today. Uh, many moons ago, uh, as a young um, PhD student uh, at Columbia, um, he was invited by uh, Susan Strange, one of the great LSE uh, voices in international affairs and international political economy, to come spend a summer at the school. So this is something of a return to his old stomping grounds, I suppose. Um, before turning the podium over to Jeff, I want to give a special shout out to the U.S. Embassy uh, here in London, and lest we forget our good friends on the other side of the pond, the American taxpayer. Uh, last year around this time, the embassy agreed to take a chance on this startup we call the U.S. Center at the LSC by generously providing funds for tonight's lecture and the other lectures that we have in the works for Lent uh, and summer terms. So I'd like to take this opportunity to thank Ambassador Matthew Barzun and his staff for really lending a helping hand and helping us get started. For those of you on Twitter tonight, the suggested hashtag is uh, LSE US Euro. I'd ask you to put your phones on silent if you haven't already done that. Um, 
the event is being recorded. It'll hopefully be made available as a podcast, but that really depends on phones not going off and so forth. And uh, let me also add um, that copies of uh, Jeff's book, uh, Currency Politics, will be available for purchase outside the lecture hall uh, when we uh, wrap up uh, this evening. And as usual, after the lecture, there'll be a chance for you to put uh, your questions to um, Professor Frieden, and I'm going to do my best to get as many questions as possible in. So with all of that, please join me in giving Jeff Frieden a nice, warm LSE. Well, thank you very much, Peter. It's a great pleasure to be, as you say, back here um, to talk about a topic that I think is on everyone's mind these days and certainly has been on mine for several years. Europe is, as you know, in the midst of a grave crisis. Um, it is probably not an exaggeration to say that this is the most serious crisis the European Union has faced in, it, in all of its history. The economies of Europe have still not fully recovered from the global financial crisis and the subsequent Eurozone sovereign debt crisis that began in 2007-2008. Economic activity is below where it was before the crisis. There are economies in Europe with unemployment above 20 percent, perhaps even more worrisome. Political conflict among the member states of the European Union is probably as fierce as it has ever been, and there doesn't really seem to be much sign of that political strife uh, going down in fervor or in, uh, in, in loudness or seriousness, um, there are a whole series of questions being asked about the future of the European Union, whether further integration is feasible or possible, whether a monetary union can be constructed or indeed even sustained as it currently stands at its current level. And in many of these discussions, the United States is given, as Peter already indicate, indicated, as something of a, an example of a highly successful monetary and economic union with a fiscal union, a banking union that faces correlated exogenous shocks, has automatic fiscal stabilizers, has a common currency, a common monetary policy, and many of the perquisites that member states of at least the Eurozone, most of the members of the European Union, would like to construct. But what I want to emphasize and illustrate over the course of the evening is that this achievement, in the case of the United States, was hardly easy. In fact, it took many decades, perhaps even more than decades, to achieve. The U.S. didn't really have a common currency until 1863. 80 years after independence. The U.S. didn't have a central bank until 1913, 130 years after independence. And for all intents and purposes, the U.S. didn't really have a common fiscal policy with automatic fiscal stabilizers until the 1930s and really probably not until the 1950s. So it isn't as though America's economic and monetary union emerged full-blown from the minds of the Founding Fathers in 1783 or 1789. It took scores of years, perhaps even centuries, to emerge, and it emerged only after massive political conflict. Political conflict that, as you may recall, led, among other things, to a civil war, but even before the Civil War, led to uh, the kind of political strife that, the, the, that Europe is currently undergoing. 
So what I want to do is to go back to the beginning, so to speak, the 1780s, to explore some of the economics and politics of the early days of America's economic and monetary union, when many of the problems that Europe is now confronting were confronted by the United States. There are striking similarities between the problems the U.S. faced, the 13 original states and subsequent members faced, and how the country moved forward and sometimes backwards in the process of attempting to create uh, the current American monetary union as a way to clarify, among other things, what the politics of the tensions associated with creating a monetary union may be. Right? The central issue here, the central problem faced by the U.S. In the from the 1780s on is very similar to the central problem that Europe faces today, in particular that the Eurozone faces. How to craft a union that provides monetary, fiscal, and financial stability. Now, in the abstract, that seems unproblematic. Everybody likes monetary stability. Everybody likes financial stability. Everybody likes fiscal stability. But there are many, many ways to achieve those goals. Some of those ways benefit some people and hurt others. Virtually every possible path towards a monetary, fiscal, and financial union will create both winners and losers. And the conflict between winners and losers is what sets the stage for the politics of monetary and fiscal and financial unification that we went through. The simple setup, and I'm going to simplify everything as is my want, the simple setup is we can think of society divided into two very broad categories, two very broad groups. The first are those in, in rapidly growing regions, typically, who are borrowing heavily, debtors, right, areas that are expanding, whose economic activity is growing, right, who want easy money, as we would say in the U.S., who want easy access to credit, low interest rates, easy lending, easy terms, terms favorable to debtors, easy bankruptcies, if necessary. On the other hand, you have more stable regions, more financially, monetarily, and conservative regions, that are not expanding or expanding more slowly, that are lending rather than borrowing, that want an environment which is more favorable to lenders, to creditors, the enforcement of debts and property rights, more conservative or restrained monetary policy, higher interest rates, policies more favorable to the creditor community. There is a long history in the United States of monetary politics, some of which is in the book that Peter mentioned, in which easy money, that is those who want low interest rates, expansion, easy credit, is pitted against hard money, those who want higher interest rates, more stable monetary and financial conditions, conditions more favorable to creditors. Right? A long history of that in the United States, and I would submit that part of what Europe is going through today there are similarities to the problems that the U.S. faced in which debtor communities squared off against creditor communities over the kind of monetary and financial union that would be created. Mark Twain is said to have said, history does not repeat itself, but it does rhyme. And what I'm going to look for today is some of the rhymes between the early American monetary and financial history and 
uh, what went on, what is going on today in the Eurozone. Well, those of you who are American or know something about the United States know the expression worthless as a continental. Uh, a con the continental currency was the paper currency issued by the Continental Congress, which was the first Congress of the United States under the, first during the Revolution and then under the Articles of Confederation. Right. The underlying reality of the 13 colonies in the War for Independence and afterwards, that is after 1783, before the Constitution, was that they effectively had no ability to raise taxes. And it's hard to fight a war without having an ability to raise taxes. So the 13 colonies and then the new United States financed their, their uh, expenses the old-fashioned way by printing money. And this is the money they printed. This is a continental, this is a continental currency. Um, this shows the course of the continental, which it, it looks pretty good, right, until you realize that the left-hand scale, which is the face value of the currency, is actually 10 times the right-hand scale, which is the real value, the specie value. So what that means, at this, I don't know if you can see the pointer, but at this point where they cross, a continental dollar was actually worth 10 cents by 17, 1778 or so, and by 1780, a continental dollar was worth two or three cents, hence the term worthless as a continental. Right? Well, you had, on, in monetary terms, I'm going to start with monetary issues and then move on to fiscal issues. In monetary terms, you had a new country with a worthless currency. The money that circulated in the 1780s was foreign money, primarily Spanish gold dollars and silver dollars. Right. Um, they could be Spanish silver dollars were widely used as trade currencies. They could be cut. They had little notches in them, and they could be cut into eight pieces, which is that's why they were called pieces of eight. And that's where the American expression two bits" means a quarter comes from. It was two bits of a piece of eight. So the American currency was virtually non-existent. The currency, to the extent that it existed, was worthless. People didn't want it. People didn't use it. In steps, my hero, Alexander Hamilton, whom those of you lucky enough to have gotten here early heard something about from the, the musical Hamilton. For those of you who didn't hear it, the, the number playing was called Cabinet Battle One. It is a rap battle moderated by George Washington between Alexander Hamilton and his nemesis, uh, Thomas Jefferson, over the creation of the first bank of the United States and of the country's financial system. I recommend it to all of you who haven't seen the musical or, or heard the soundtrack. This is Hamilton on central banking. As I say, Hamilton was my hero. He was born in Nevis in the, in the Caribbean, but my, immigrated to New York very early, spent the rest of his life in New York. He's a New York icon. He founded the Bank of New York probably set up the first New York City water supply, created the first industrial, planned industrial town in Patterson, New Jersey, across the Hudson River. He went to my alma mater, Columbia University. It was called King's College then. They changed the name after the, the recent troubles, um, for obvious reasons. And Hamilton was undoubtedly the most economically literate of all the founding fathers. He was one of the deepest thinkers. He was a very early political economist in every sense of the word, um, it, widely read in classical political economy, and a brilliant financial and economic thinker. He was, of course, the first Secretary of the Treasury of the United States. 
This particular quote on central banking is from one of his two massive volumes on political economy, both of which are well worth the read for anyone interested in political economy. This is the the report on manufacturers. His second report, actually it was written first, is the so-called report on the public credit. So Alexander Hamilton set about in 1789 trying to create a monetary and financial union. The first step in creating this, and I'm not going to read what's up on the board because you can read it for yourselves, Uh, the first step in creating this monetary union was to create a central bank. Now, central banking was relatively new at the time. The Bank of England was less than 100 years old, um, and central banks didn't do a lot of what central banks do today, but Hamilton wanted his central bank, that is, the first bank of the United States, this is its building, it's in Philadelphia, still standing, He wanted the First Bank of the United States to do a lot of what we now think of as modern central banking. This was a central bank that issued bank notes, that is, notes that were backed by gold, specie, in the name of the United States. He wanted this central bank, and this First Bank of the United States engaged in a lot of incipient regulation of other banks in the country, also allowing banks to form. It acted as a lender of last resort, That is, in crisis, it would lend into the crisis to try to dampen the effects of the crisis. And it had what we would today call monetary policy. That is, it managed the country's credit conditions so as to try to maintain monetary stability. It was based in Philadelphia. And the reason it was controversial, the reason Jefferson hated it and opposed it, was that it was largely controlled, might be too strong a word, but certainly heavily influenced by the commercial and financial interests of New England and the Northeast. Boston, New York, Philadelphia, Baltimore were major financial and commercial centers. They were the stable, more fiscally conservative regions of the country. They were the financial centers of the country. They wanted stable monetary conditions. They did not want inflation. They did not want a weak currency. They wanted what what we might think of as a more conservative monetary and financial policy. Jefferson, on the other hand, represented the rapidly growing agrarian frontier that wanted easy credit. Jefferson hated cities, and he hated banks. In fact, if it had been up to him, banks would have been illegal, literally. There would have been not only no national bank, there would have been no banks at all. He believed that credit was, that, that the extension of credit by financial interests was wrong, and that people should simply create credit on their own through merchants. So that rap battle between Jefferson and Hamilton was eventually decided. The second, there was a second number. I don't know if they got up to it. But the compromise that was reached was that Jefferson, Madison, and the Virginians gave Hamilton control of the country's financial future in return for what they thought was a crucially important decision, citing the capital of the country in the south, in Washington, D.C., Turned out that that wasn't so important because eventually railroads got invented, so it wasn't so hard to get to Washington. But at the time, that was seen as a major, a major uh, gain. In any event, the First Bank of the United States incurred almost immediately the hostility of debtor groups on the frontier and in the South, especially among farmers. This is a national bank note issued by the First Bank of the United States. It's for $10.00 doesn't sound like much, but $10 in today's money would be $250. But perhaps more important, $10 in 1798 was a month's wages for an average worker. So these were not banknotes that circulated freely. They, were, they circulated among merchants, among corporate individuals, among banks themselves. But they were the money supply of the U.S. They were the, the, they were the backing for the money supply of the United States. 
So with the creation of the first bank, Hamilton created a stable currency, a stable national currency. You'll, you'll remember that I said we didn't have a national currency until 1863. And I'm saying we did for a period. I'll come back to that. A stable currency, a currency that was very carefully managed by the first bank in non-inflationary uh, conditions and credit conditions that were, again, enough to allow the country to grow, but not loose enough or pro-debtor enough to allow the frontier grow as rapidly as it might. Having solved, so to speak, the monetary problems of the country, Hamilton turned to what was even more daunting, the fiscal problems. The U.S., 13 colonies, and then the United States had incurred massive debts during the Revolution and after. The states had, there was no national fiscal authority. The states were responsible for raising money to fund the militias. The states issued bonds, then promptly defaulted on them. The government would commandeer resources from farmers or manufacturers and give them pieces of paper saying, we owe you a million dollars in return for all the muskets or rifles you've sold us, and then not pay. So the U.S. had massive debts to suppliers, to farmers, to creditors, to lenders overseas. We borrowed a lot of money from the French and the Dutch in particular, and we weren't paying any of it. All of those debts, almost all of those debts, were owed by the states because there was effectively, before the Constitution, before 1789, there was no national government. There was a confederation, a loose confederation of independent states which regarded themselves as sovereign. So the states, for all intents and purposes, had borrowed heavily, and almost all of them had defaulted on their debts. Hamilton suggested a revolutionary, so to speak, policy, which was to have the federal government assume the state's debts, to have all these debts that the states were not paying off taken over by the federal government and have the federal government start paying them off. The idea was the states may be bankrupt. That makes it impossible for them to borrow. For the U.S. to establish its creditworthiness, for us to be able to be a functioning monetary, economic, and fiscal union, we have to have a creditworthy federal government, national government. The best way of showing our debtors that the federal government is creditworthy is by paying off a bunch of worthless debts, to paying off, paying off the debts of the states. Right. Again, this was highly controversial extremely strongly opposed by Jefferson, Madison, Southerners, people on the frontier, who said, why should the federal government bail out a bunch of worthless debts? Why should the federal government use taxpayer money to pay off debts that have already been defaulted on? Why, in other words, should taxpayers be responsible for the bad behavior of states, people, state governments that have not been servicing their debts? Hamilton argued, as you can see here, that this was a necessary step to regaining the confidence of creditors around the world. And so in 1789, 1790, he instituted a complete restructuring of the debts, which was called assumption, because the federal government assumed the state's debts and restructured them. Very complicated restructuring. As I said, he was sort of a financial genius. So this is a picture of how the worthless debts, which you can see the domestic principle up up until 1791, worthless debts were restructured into a series of um, staggered bonds with different interest rates. Now, he didn't pay off 100 cents on the dollar. There were haircuts. Some creditors got more money than others. But for all intents and purposes, almost overnight, 
Hamilton restored the country's creditworthiness. You can see before the assumption, the country's debts were trading at about 40 cents on the dollar. After assumption, they went up to about 90 cents on the dollar. That reflects the haircut. So Hamilton had solved the country's monetary problems by creating a stable currency and central bank and the country's financial problems by restoring the creditworthiness of the federal government and its ability to borrow internationally, which it immediately made use of. Fine. However, the issue was not over. As I said, there was massive opposition to Hamilton. Hamilton was killed in a duel there in Burr several years later. But there was opposition to Hamilton and his plan. And in fact, in 1811, faced with the opposition of the agrarian parts of the country, the first bank in the United States was allowed to expire. So the, the bank no longer existed in 1811. It went out of business particularly poorly timed because a year later um, some bright Americans got the idea of trying to take over Canada and sparked the War of 1812, which we lost. Um, One of the reasons we lost was that we had no way of financing the War of 1812 because we had closed down the first bank in the United States, the, the central bank, and as a result had also lost the ability to float both domestic and foreign credit, so we couldn't finance the war. There was a massive inflation during the War of 1812, and so in 1816, when the war was over and we'd ma- arrived at terms with the British, um, the Congress reconvened and rectified what it now thought of as its error and set up the second bank of the United States. Right. Second bank of the United States was a lot like the first bank in that it was a what we would think of as a modern central bank. It, it um, issued national currency. It uh, regulated a lot of the state banks. Many of the banks were officially chartered by states, but the, second, the first bank and the second bank operated policies, which I can go into in detail if anyone's interested, which made sure that the banks were not issuing more currency than they could back with gold or silver. So they regulated the banks. They regulated the country's monetary policy, its credit conditions. But the second bank was, if anything, even more controversial than the first, partly because the first bank was operating in easy times. Between 1789 and 1815, the world economy was pretty closed. You had the French Revolution and the Napoleonic Wars, which really put a crimp in international trade and finance. The London, the UK was off gold at the time. It went off gold during the Napoleonic Wars. So international financial markets were closed. World trade was at an ebb. So it was not that hard to run a modern economy in this kind of closed economy sense when the world economy wasn't operating. In the 18-teens, late 18-teens and into the 1820s, the world economy reopened after the end of the Napoleonic Wars and everything hit the fan, so to speak. One thing, and perhaps the most important thing that happened, was that the world market for cotton exploded when the Napoleonic Wars were open and the British economy began running on a peacetime footing again. The demand for cotton skyrocketed. A few years earlier, the cotton gin had been invented. So from being largely an exporter of indigo, rice, and tobacco, all of a sudden, the American South became one huge cotton plantation and began expanding at breakneck speed. You had states growing growing 20-25% a year over the course of the 1820s and 1830s. Extraordinarily rapid expansion, which those on the frontier felt was being hampered by the conservative credit conditions imposed by the second bank. So, over the course of the 1820s and into the 1830s, massive conflicts erupted over the second bank. 
right? The, the, the term being used was the monetary straitjacket that the Second Bank and its president, Nicholas Biddle, were imposing were retarding the economic growth of American farming and the American frontier. This is a national bank note from 1829. This has gone down in history for those of you who know their early American history, as the bank war or bank wars. This is a political cartoon which shows the great hero, Andrew Jackson, the Jacksonian Democrat, the great hero fighting off the many-headed hydra of the fiscal, financial, and monetary conservatives backing the Second Bank of the United States. They include people like Nicholas Biddle, the president of the bank, Henry Clay, Daniel Webster. They also include British bankers, the Rothschild, uh, the Queen of England, all sorts of foreign conspirators whose monetary and fiscal conservatism and, in the minds of many, British financial imperialism were impeding the growth of the American frontier. Again, the politics of this can be understood in the simplest of possible terms as saying you had a monetary uh, division between the, the monetary conservatives of the Northeast and New England who wanted pro-creditor, pro stable monetary conditions, right? relatively slow growth of the money supply, low or no inflation. And on the other hand, you had the frontier, the South and what was called the West, what we would now call the Midwest, who, who wanted easy credit, low interest rates, pro-debtor conditions, wanted the First Bank of the United States to allow banks to lend as much as they wanted. Right? All of this was caught up in the bank war. Andrew Jackson, president from Tennessee, from the frontier, launched uh, a war on the First Bank. He, in fact, ran for president against the First Bank, making the argument that the First Bank was misusing its power on behalf of the rich uh, creditors of the Northeast, right, bending the government to the interests of powerful creditor interests and against the interests of those on the frontier and in the countryside who wanted and needed economic expansion. Um, these interests were defended by people like Daniel Webster and Henry Clay, who argued that the creditor interests of the Northeast stood at the base of the creditworthiness of the country and that by destroying the creditworthiness of the financial centers, Jackson risked destroying the creditworthiness of the United States and its monetary and financial stability more broadly. Um, this, without going into a lot of detail, Jackson was able to, to uh, force Congress originally to not recharter the second bank, so the second bank was closed down, and then he essentially drove it out of business by uh, something called the Species Circular, so that by 1836, the second bank was a dead letter, and we no longer had a central bank, no longer had a national currency, right? and we move on to a second peri another period, which I'll talk about in a moment. But I want to point out that uh, these events are hardly irrelevant to today's American politics. If you look at that first quote on the left, you'll see that many on the right wing, in particular of the Republican Party, regard Andrew Jackson as the, the principal uh, proponent of the kinds of monetary, fiscal, and financial policies they support. The poster on the right is from Ron Paul's presidential campaign in 2008, 
right? Anne has a long quote from Andrew Jackson. Actually, it's one of the quotes that I had up on the board before regarding Andrew Jackson and his fight against the Second Bank as the precursor to the Tea Party and conservatives in the Republican Party's fight against the Federal Reserve. On a somewhat more nefarious or, or nasty point, there are ultra-conservative elements who see all this as part of a Jewish conspiracy. And you can see here um, that they talk about Alexander Hamilton, who was really a secret Jew. His name was Levine, and so on and so forth. So it's not quite so pretty as it might appear. But the reality is that Andrew Jackson remains, for many, a paragon of the kind of monetary and financial policies that many in the United States would still like to see. Right? Um, one might say, perhaps a little bit unfairly, that like the Bourbon Kings, some of these folks have forgotten nothing and learned nothing from history, um, but that might be a little unfair. In any event, so Jackson wins. The second bank is shut down. There is no national bank. There is no national currency. And everything is decentralized to the states. So now we enter into a period of what's sometimes called free banking or wildcat banking. Right? And what that meant was that each state could implement the monetary policy that it wanted to, that states could charter as many banks as they wanted, and they could allow those banks to operate in any way they wanted. If you were a fiscally and financially conservative state, if you were New York or Massachusetts, you would only charter banks that had strong backing, and you would require them to hold gold as backing for any notes that they issued. So remember, the, you had the Bank of the United States was issuing bank notes, which were backed by the U.S. government, the federal government, and backed by gold. But once they're no longer U.S. banknotes, again, there's no national money at this point. All paper currency is issued by banks. So the first bank of Jeff Frieden issues a, a note that says, this is worth $1. And if I have gold in my vaults to back that up, then people will use it as if it were a dollar. And if you're New York or Massachusetts or Rhode Island in the conservative part of the country, financially and fiscally conservative part of the country, you make sure that everybody who opens a bank has plenty of money and enough gold to back the, the bank notes that he issues. But if you're in Mississippi or Illinois or Ohio and your population is increasing 10% every year and your farmers are desperate to borrow so they can expand production, then what you do is you let anybody who wants to open a bank and you let them issue as many banknotes as they want because you want a money supply that's rapidly expanding. You want interest rates that are low and, if possible, even negative. So what happens is that the states are able to adopt their own banking and monetary policies. Some states run very loose money. They allow anybody to open a bank and allow the banks to issue lots of banknotes. And some states run very tight money. They restrict the creation of banks and have tight restrictions on what the banks can do in terms of issuing currency. You can see here, this is where the, bank, the second bank goes out of business. And right around here in the early 1830s, you can see that the number of banks in the country right, more, more than doubles within less than a decade. And loans increase more than fivefold in less than a decade. Now, if this were differentiated by state, what you would find is a gradual increase both in the number of banks and in loans in places like New York and Pennsylvania and Massachusetts, but a 5, 10, 15-fold increase in lending in places like Mississippi, Ohio, and Illinois. Well, if you've thought through, okay, just to show you that this is 
uh, the kind of note issue. This is the, the Bull's Head Bank issuing. In, this is actually a bank from upstate New York. So the Bull's Head Bank issued a, a, a bank note, $1, with a bull's head on it, of course. And that turned out to be a pretty good bank. So that, that bank that bank note had credibility. But as you can imagine, people aren't stupid. And people recognized relatively early on that a bank note issued by a bank that had gold in its vaults or other valuable assets like New York State bonds that were payable on demand and were very creditworthy, that, that a bank that had those assets in its, in its vaults, those dollars were worth a dollar. But a bank that issued a dollar bill or a $10 bill that didn't have enough gold in its vaults, that wasn't going to be able to redeem that dollar or $10, that those dollars really weren't worth a dollar. And so what developed was a monetary divergence among the states of the United States. And that divergence took the form of different states' banknotes trading for different prices. So they were all called dollars. But for all intents and purposes, there were New York dollars and Alabama dollars and Ohio dollars. And those dollars traded at different rates of discount. And what emerged, apart from these different dollars, was a whole industry of what were called banknote reporters. So every week, there would be a new issue of these magazines that would say how much each each state's dollars were worth. Because you had to keep track. If you were a merchant or a farmer or someone else, and someone tried to pass you a banknote saying, oh, I've got a $10 bill to pay. Here's a $10 bill. You had to look at it and say, wait a second, this is a $10 bill. It's from Alabama. It's only worth $2. It's not, and then you say, well, okay. Um, here's a $10 bill from New York. It's worth $10. But you had to keep track of these things. And so this is an example, Van Court's counterfeit detector and banknote list. And you can see the, the discount rates, which vary a lot. This is a, a broader one. You certainly can't read this, I don't think. But if you could, and I, I'll just read for you what it says up there, banknotes from New York State traded at 99.5%. That is 99.5 cents on the dollar. So there's a transaction cost. Basically, New York State banknotes are trading on a dollar at a dollar for, for a dollar. Banknotes from Indiana traded at 90 cents on the dollar. From Illinois, at 70 cents on the dollar. From Alabama, at 60 cents on the dollar. And if you, you probably can't read this, but what it says under Mississippi is no sale. That is, we will not buy banknotes from the state of Mississippi. So banknotes from stable, conservative states that were managing their fiscal and monetary policies um, in a conservative manner were trading at or near par. Banknotes from the less reliable states were trading at 20, 30, 50 percent discounts right, or couldn't be sold at any price. Now, it's important to recognize, and this is particularly relevant to those interested in the Eurozone, what the underlying reason for the difference in the quality of these banknotes was. The underlying reason was that the main reserve held by banks was in state bonds. So the states would charter banks and say, you have to hold reserves. Banks have to have reserves so that they can pay out to their depositors. You have to hold reserves. And if you're in New York, you have to hold reserves in New York state bonds. And if you're in Mississippi, you can hold reserves in Mississippi state bonds. In fact, in New York, they would say you have to hold reserves in gold and New York state bonds. Well, if New York state bonds are reliable, then the banks that are holding those New York state bonds as reserves are also reliable. But if Mississippi bonds are not reliable, 
That is, if Mississippi bonds are pretty worthless, then the banknotes issued by Mississippi are also, also worthless. And in fact, the one, that, the one that's up here now, the reason there's no sale on Mississippi uh, banknotes is that Mississippi, the state of Mississippi, was in default on its bonds, which meant the bonds that the banks were holding as reserves were worthless. So the banknotes backed by those bonds were also worthless. In other words, and here those of you interested in the European uh, parallels will see the parallel, the problem was that the fiscal conditions of the states directly implicated the, the financial position of the banks from those states, and in fact vice versa. The, the states with healthier banks were able to finance themselves by selling their bonds to the banks, which were creditworthy. The, the states with financially unhealthy banks couldn't sell their bonds to the banks because the bonds were effectively worthless. Right? Now, you might say, well, but you know, governments were really small at that point, and it couldn't have mattered that much. In fact, state borrowing skyrocketed over the course of the 1830s in this free banking period, skyrocketed so that state government debt as a share of state GDP by 1841 was double what it is today as a share of state GDP. So the American states today actually owe less, about half as a share of their GDP of, of what they owed in 1841. So this was very, very substantial um, um, borrowing by the American states. Now, why could the states borrow? Go back to assumption. The states could borrow in large part because international lenders said, ah, we know these Americans. They borrow, they default, and then they get bailed out because Alexander Hamilton saved our bacon back in the 1780s with assumption we can lend to Mississippi because we know that if Mississippi defaults, the federal government will step in, Mississippi is too big to fail, Mississippi will be bailed out. So there was the obvious moral hazard issue, which led to an expectation of a bailout in the, the, the less financially conservative states. Right? So just to, I should point out that I, I paint the picture being something of a Hamiltonian, paint the picture which seems biased towards fiscal and financial conservatism. One could make a somewhat different argument and say, these were rapidly growing regions of the country. They were growing much more rapidly than anything we observe today, faster even than China in its highest, most rapid growth. These are areas that are being opened up. You know, they're pushing the frontier back 10 miles every day. They're opening up new farmland. They need credit. They need to build an infrastructure. They need to build canals, eventually railroads. They need to get their product to market. In the final analysis, these regions are going to be wealthy, but they have to get there first. So there's a legitimate demand for financial and monetary expansion. The problem is the, the, the benefits of financial and monetary expansion for the frontier were a cost to the monetary and financial conservatives in the creditor regions. Making credit easy for the frontier meant reducing the rates of return to those in the financial and commercial centers. In any event, state debts grew very rapidly until inevitably they didn't. And in 1841, the states began to default. Now, not all the states. You can see that this, is, this divides the states uh, among three group, four groups. 
the green states, so to speak, uh, the green states never defaulted, and they, this is state, state debt is a, is a share, there's a percentage of state income. So you can see that the, green, the states that never defaulted had far less debt than the states that defaulted. The states, the red states, <laughs> the red states actually are today also red states, ironically. <laughs> Um, they are places like Mississippi and Alabama and Georgia. And so. The red states uh, uh, repudiated their debt. The, um, I don't know what the, the puke yellow states, uh, default, partially repudiated, that is defaulted and partially repudiated, and then the yellow states defaulted temporarily and eventually reached some, some settlement with their, uh, with their creditors. The, um, the markets reacted almost immediately. You can see that the bonds of the defaulting states, there were nine, eight states in a territory, the territory of Florida, that defaulted. The, the, the discount was 5 7% because these were not really credit worthy. And then after 1841, when the defaults kicked in, they shot upward to 40%. Most of those debts were eventually renegotiated and restructured, right? The creditors, because there was, so, so this then became, just like Assumption, a major political issue in the Congress. But unlike with Assumption, there was no question of this implicating the creditworthiness of the government, of the federal government, because only a minority of states had defaulted. And the states that had not defaulted, the New Yorks and Pennsylvanias and Rhode Islands and, and Massachusetts said, we still have access. International credit markets are smart we have a history. This is not 1789. We can still borrow. Mississippi's default is not hurting us. There is no reason we should bail out the lazy uh, Mississippians, shades of today, um, when all of the work is being done by hardworking New Yorkers and, and, and Bay Staters. Right? So there was never a majority in Congress in favor of the bailout because the majority of states had not, in fact, defaulted. And so every attempt to institute a bailout failed. The states defaulted, and some actually repudiated. This is the state of Mississippi, which repudiated its debt. There's an organization here in London, used to be, I think it's closed up by now, called the Council of Foreign Bondholders. The Council of Foreign Bondholders represented bondholders in international markets, and they would renegotiate debts. They would sit down and renegotiate debts with countries that were in default on their credits. In 1841, the state of Mississippi defaulted, and it eventually repudiated its debts. And if you look at the, if you can read this, you can see that those debts are still in default. And every year since the 1840s, the Council of Foreign Bondholders has written to the, the treasurer and the governor of the state of Mississippi, as they say, um, writing, inviting him on assuming the governorship to give his earnest consideration to the default on the state of Mississippi plant during Union Bank bonds. They pointed out the injustice which was perpetrated so long ago and invited the governor-elect to appoint the representative to discuss with them the best practical way of settling the matter in a creditable and satisfactory way. The governor <laughs> did not respond to the suggestion. And the state of Mississippi remains in default on what, with the crude interest, is probably several trillion dollars in debt. Now, the reason the governor did not respond is that the Mississippians being in, uh, infinitely inventive, almost immediately after the default, set up, had a state constitutional convention and passed a new constitution of the state of Mississippi, which made it unconstitutional for any officer of the state to have any contact with the creditors of the Union Planters Bank. 
which was the debtor. So that it actually is unconstitutional under the state constitution for the governor or anyone else to renegotiate these debts. So default and repudiation are possible, and there is life after repudiation, I guess, if you call Mississippi life. Oh, I won't say that. Um, anyway. <laughs> um, in 1863, finally, we reach what is, I'm sorry to say, the end of our story, which is the National Banking Act is passed. Well, why is it passed? In 1861, the South secedes. And for those who have trouble understanding or picturing that, what it means for people to for a part of the country to secede, what it meant in this case was they got up and left the House and left the Senate. They were no longer in the government. The big block to everything from the tariff to a national banking act to more financially conservative policies had always been the South. Once the South was not in the House and Senate, the first act of the new House and Senate was, of course, to raise an army to declare war on the secessionist states and get them back in the country. The second act was to raise the tariff, which had long been opposed by the free trading South. Among the other acts taken by the now non-South, that is largely hard money northeastern states, was to create a national banking act, giving the Secretary of the Treasury much expanded power to control the money supply. We did go off gold because we were at war, but we issued a national currency. This is the U.S. dollar. Oh, sorry. Uh, the U.S. dollar issued in this, this is a $10 bill. There's actually a very important, for some of you at least, a very important feature of this bill. Peter, you and I were talking about this before. Can you see, anybody see what's important about this bill? Peter, lower right-hand corner. Who's it, who's it signed by? Can you read that? Looks like it's Cyrus. Tyrus. Tyrus R. Cobb. Tyrus Cobb. Ty Cobb. Ty Cobb. So, Ty Cobb. Ty Cobb, a, one of the most famous and nastiest of American baseball players. Um, he was from Livonia. He was from Livonia, uh, and, and they got him as a, as a celebrity to sign this banknote. <laughs> that was one of the things that got them credit. But, but from 1863 onward, paper currency issued by the federal government had the full faith and credit of the federal government, not of the states, but of the federal government behind it. And therefore, whatever the credit conditions might have been, they were set by the federal government. There was a full monetary union. Now, there, that didn't end debates over monetary policy. I talked today to graduate students about work that I've done on debates over monetary policy in the 1870s and 80s and into the 1890s over the gold standard. There were debates over monetary policy, but there was never any question that there was now a monetary union and that monetary policy would be set at the central level by the federal government. Right? So... It took a while, 80 years, but the, we did get a monetary union. What then are the lessons that we might learn? Well, profound lesson, um, paraphrasing uh, Abraham Lincoln, you can satisfy some of the people all the time and all the people all, some of the time, but you can't satisfy all the people all the time. That there are profound differences, distributional differences, with respect to the appropriateness of monetary policies and monetary regimes. Just as with most other economic policies, and as we say in political economy, where you stand depends on where you sit. Monetary policy has important technical characteristics. I won't deny that for a moment. But apart from the technical issues, there are powerful interests at stake in monetary policy. 
which makes it effectively highly political. A strong dollar with low inflation is good for creditors, for commercial and financial interests. A weak dollar, an inflationary dollar, is good for debtors, for farmers, for manufacturers. That was true in the 1840s, it was true in the 1870s, it was true in the 1890s, and in different circumstances it is, it is true today as it was before. I give, as I was saying before to someone, I give talks often about current monetary and financial conditions in the U.S. in the midst of the aftermath of the crisis. And, you know, most of the attendees at those talks are retirees, because uh, who else has the time to go to these talks? But the retirees, and the most common question slash objection from people in the audience is, how do they expect us to live with such low interest rates? Because American retirees typically subsist on the basis of their savings, of retirement savings. And over the course of the 1990s and early 2000s, they'd gotten used to 6, 8, 10% earnings a year on their savings. And now they're lucky to get 1% or 2% a year. So they're the, the ones who hate the Fed. They hate the Fed not for being excessively uh, loose, but for being, for being excessively tight, as farmers used to, but for being excessively loose, for allowing interest rates to be so low. If you look at what the, the uh, Theda Scotchwell, my colleague, has done an in-depth study of the supporters of the Tea Party, the average Tea Party supporter is in his mid-60s, is either a retiree or about to be one, and has substantial uh, assets in retirement savings, and depends on Social Security and Medicare for large portions of his income. So it is completely rational for such a Tea Party supporter to say, cut everything federal except Social Security and Medicare, and let interest rates go up. All right. So monetary policy is political. Fiscal policy is also political. Fiscal policy includes policy towards debts and towards the adjustment of debt. This is as political today as it was in the 1880s, in the 1780s, or in the 1840s. And it is as political today in the European Union as it has been in the U.S. In macroeconomics, it's a well-known observation that there is an asymmetry to the adjustment burden. If we think of the aftermath of accumulated debts, you, a country or a region goes through a process of building up debts, of borrowing very heavily, and then it has to adjust to the accumulated debts. The standard story is that adjustment process is asymmetric because the debtors have no choice but to repay their debts, while creditors really don't have to do anything. Right? They are owed the money. But that ignores the politics. Creditors have tools in their arsenals. Debtors have tools as well. Debtors can, can default, as they did in the American case, as they have done in so many Latin American and other developing country cases. The politics of accumulated debts is just as controversial, just as distributionally important, can be just as politically conflictual as po the politics of monetary policy. Today, I don't want to belabor these historical analogies because I think we face conditions today which are reminiscent of history but have their own unique characteristics. Both in the U.S. and in the EU, there are major divergences over monetary policy and financial and debt policy. On monetary policy, there are questions as to whether the monetary policy should be engineered in such a way as to reduce the burden of debts on debtor communities or to try to build up, sustain, improve the creditworthiness 
and the rates of return to creditor communities. And you can't do both at once. Choices have to be made. On debts, the issue is, should the government or governments involved work to restructure those debts, restructuring being a polite word for reducing them, should the government step in to try to reduce the real burden of the debt? Now, you can reduce the real burden of the debt by inflating some of it away. You can reduce the real burden of the debt by making it easy for people to declare personal bankruptcy. You can reduce the real burden of the debt with targeted policies towards mortgage holders or student loan holders. Or you can reduce the burden of the debt if it's sovereign debt by forcing creditors to take a haircut. But every step along, that way, on, along those ways affects the, 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 the interests of the creditor communities. Where those creditors are banks, financial institutions, or other sovereign creditors. So in the US, as in the EU, there is, there is conflict over who will be asked to bear the burden of adjusting to the aftermath of the debt crisis. I want to make two concluding points, just to draw some of it together. The first is that designing a monetary policy in a disparate union union, will always be politically difficult. It is just as politically difficult today in the U.S. as it was back in the 1880s and 90s. There is much talk in the U.S. about the inappropriateness of contemporary monetary policy for some regions of the country. There's no reason, for example, in some broad sense, why Texas and Louisiana should have the same monetary policy as New York. Texas and Louisiana are basically the oil patch. Their economies are entirely dependent on oil. They do poorly when oil prices tank, so to speak. New York does well when oil prices go down. So we have two regions of the country that really run against each other on the commodity cycle. And yet we have a common central bank which has to figure out how to square the difference between those two very disparate regions. Now, to be sure, the regions of the U.S. are more similar than the regions of the Eurozone, but there are still grave differences, and it is still politically complicated for any central bank, including the Fed, to design a monetary policy that is politically acceptable to the disparate parts of the country. The challenge for the Fed is to withstand these pressures, to try to design a monetary policy that is politically acceptable. The challenge for us as observers and analysts is to try to understand the pressures on the monetary authorities and to understand how they are likely to respond to those pressures. So that's the first point on monetary policy. The second point, perhaps more relevant to the Eurozone today, is that debt, like monetary policy, is always political, and recovery from a debt crisis is especially so. The issue is always who will bear the burden of adjustment. In the aftermath of a debt crisis, it is always the case that political conflict will erupt over who will be asked to sacrifice to deal with the aftermath of the debt crisis, to deal with the debt overhang. The burden of accumulated debt that has been built up, in the case of the Eurozone, over the course of the 10 years before 2008. There are two dimensions on which that conflict takes place. The first is international and divides creditor countries from debtor countries and asks, should it be the Germans or the Spaniards, the Dutch or the Portuguese, that bear the burden of adjustment to the the aftermath of the debt crisis? But there's a second dimension as well, which is domestic, inside countries. Within Germany, should it be the financial institutions or the taxpayers? 
within Greece or Spain? Should it be public sector employees, beneficiaries of government programs, the private sector? Who is going to be asked to make the sacrifices necessary to restructure the debts that have retarded European economic growth for the last five years and more? The issue is not just one of a one-off debt restructuring that we, whether in the U.S. historical case or in the EU today, a lot of it has to do with what will be the enduring nature of the relations among the different regions of the monetary, financial, and fiscal union. In the U.S., for much of the 19th century, the issue was what terms these state debts would be contracted under and who would be responsible for them, what the underlying nature of the division of labor between states and central government would be, right? what the terms of trade among the regions would be, would be beyond gold or off gold, all these kinds of things. And I would submit that the core issues in the Eurozone are very, very similar. What is, who, what, who will be responsible for the fiscal policies of both the, the sub-EU units, that is the nation states and the EU? Who will be responsible for the debts incurred by the, nation, the member states? Who will be responsible for the financial stability of the European Union and of the Eurozone and of its currency. Now, in the European context, as in the American context, I think it is clear that adjustment cannot be unilateral. You cannot throw the entire burden of adjustment, as we did not in the U.S. in this period, upon the debtors. That's politically, typically unsustainable. If the deficit countries are going to repay, they have to reduce their deficits, and that means they have to either have a restructured debt or they have to uh, increase their sales to the surplus regions of the country, which is what happened in the U.S. It hasn't happened here, largely in Europe, that is, in the Eurozone, largely because there, have been substantial, there has been substantial opposition to a restructuring of Eurozone member state debts and substantial opposition to a rebalancing of the Eurozone economies in such a way as to make it easy for Eurozone debtors to, to service their debts. But as we have seen, working out a compromise between debtors and creditors that can take a very long time. It took decades and decades in the case of the U.S. I certainly hope for the sake of Europeans that it does not take decades in the case of the European Union, but I think the American experience highlights the fact that the political difficulties in overcoming the aftermath of monetary disorder and a debt crisis are massive. They are not simple. It is not a technical issue, it is a political issue, and it will have to be resolved politically. So, in conclusion, the American experience, I think, demonstrates that crafting a functioning economic and monetary union is a long, hard road. It is not long and hard, primarily, due to technical difficulties. It is long and hard because it requires finding politically sustainable compromises among very different regions of the country or regions of the Eurozone, very different groups, interest groups, classes within society. It took the United States a long, long time to figure out how to navigate the difficult political shoals of creating an economic and monetary union. The U.S. underwent substantial conflict, including a civil war, not that the civil war was caused by monetary policy, but including a civil war before those regional differences were fully ironed out. Current economic, social, and political turmoil in the U.S. indicates that even in the U.S., the compromise may not be entirely stable. 
So I think, in comparison, it is no surprise that for the European Union and the Eurozone, the concluding chapter is nowhere near to have been written. I'll stop there and we'll go to questions. Thank you. Well, Jeff, that's, that's, that's great. We're going to get to questions in just one second. I'm going to exercise my uh, prerogative and ask the first question. I, I, I love the story you tell. I love the way you tell it. You get so excited about currency matters. Um, and you, you should really share it, it seems to me. I just kept thinking about this. You should share it with Ted Cruz because um, <laughs> he's hammering New York for being so liberal and not yeah. so in your take. Not so. Well, did you see the New York Daily News headline? No. The front page of the New York Daily News said, for, the, for non-Americans, we know this, in the mid-'70s, New York went bankrupt. The New, York, New York, the city, went to the federal government, Gerald Ford being the president at the time, and Ford refused to bail out the city the New York Daily News headline at the time was Ford to New York, Drop Dead. Yeah. The headline after Ted Cruz attacked New York values. For those who didn't see us, he, he accused Donald Trump of being a representative of New York values, whatever they are. And so the Daily News headline was New York to Cruz, Drop Dead. <laughs> and they actually gave, they gave him the thing, had the Statue of Liberty giving him the middle finger at the time. <laughs> okay, so, um, so I got a question uh, that has to do with I guess, in a way, the kind of the note of optimism at the end about the EU. Um, uh, it, 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 it really has to do with um, America's path to monetary uh, union. I mean, one of the things about those 80 years uh, is that, um, you know, the United States enjoyed what others have called free security during... Um, that period. It, it basically could afford to engage in the distributional struggles that you are talking about, um, uh, not only because it was so richly endowed and was growing uh, in, in the way that you describe it, uh, which is, of course, very true, but also because it was largely it could largely ignore security considerations, not completely. I mean, there are periods where this just simply does not hold up, uh, part of the Napoleonic War period, um, but for the most part, it could. And it seems to me that that's something that maybe is unique, or I guess this is a question, I mean, is that unique about the American story? I mean, if you think about the, can the European Union, can it really afford 80 years given You've got um, refugees kind of lapping up on the shores. You've got Russian ambitions, maybe the problems associated with the rise of China. And in the United States, it sometimes looks like that it's going to pick up its marbles and go home. So I wonder, there's a part of the story here, it seems to me, it's not IPE-ish, it's security-related and how you might kind of... Mm -hmm. How one might bring that in? Well, I, I, I clearly don't mean to say that every aspect of the American experience is directly relevant. Sure. But I think it should be pointed out that it was not a done deal that the U.S. would not face security issues in the 1780s. Sure. After all, the, one of the strongest 
reasons for the dissolution of the Articles of Confederation and the creation of the current U.S. government under the Constitution was the fear that the states would would separate Mm -hmm. and that if they did, they would then... In, in, effect, in effect, be open to recolonization by the British or the French or even the Spanish, mm. right? Um, so there was a strong, I mean, if you read Hamilton, if you read the debates at the time, there was a strong argument in favor of a powerful federal central government that was driven almost, not, in, not entirely, Hamilton was very economistic, but many of, many of the Virginians, for, if you look at the, the Federalist Papers were mostly written by Hamilton, but, but they were also written by Madison. And the Madisonian parts of the Federalist Papers often talked about the need for a strong federal government and strong central government because of the security threat. I remember we had just barely gotten independence from the British. The British controlled this vast tundra to the north. The British controlled all these islands to the south. The Spaniards still controlled Mexico, which was to our west. The French controlled or came to control eventually the Louisiana Territory. So we were not without security threats in those first 15, 20, 25 years. Um, They do go down in intensity by the 1820s once the Latin American republics get their independence. The security threats um, decline because France is out of the picture and Spain is out of the picture. And eventually, with the Monroe Doctrine, the British are guaranteeing that no one's going to be moving back into Latin America. But I don't think that really answers much of the question. I mean, Latin American republics, also, one could argue, had plenty of reasons to not worry about security, except they started beating up on each other. So we did try to invade Canada. Um, there were other powers around. Mm-hmm. There were security threats. It, in the late 19th, late 18th century, the security and economic, from, for, I'd say during the Napoleonic Wars until the early 1820s, the economic and military imperatives were pretty similar. Mm-hmm. You need a strong central government. And one of the reasons that Jefferson and Madison were willing to give Hamilton these powers was that they did recognize the need for that from a military standpoint because the articles were unworkable. Um, by the 1820s, you're right, the military imperatives are less important, but still I think there is, all through this period, even up till the 1890s, a sense that the U.S. is trying to establish itself in a relatively hostile environment. I mean, the European powers are rearming. Uh, the British control all of our sea paths. We had to fight for neutrality on the seas. We had to take sides in the wars that were going on in Europe. So security, security issues were not as important as they were before the 1820s, but they weren't absent. Uh, So I guess I would say, yes, but. Yes, security was less important by the 1820s, but the U.S. was always a member of the the international community and always had to worry about its status there. I mean, again, think of the Civil War. The Civil War was largely fought on the financial markets of Europe, where uh, every step of the way, the, the North is arguing, we're going to prevail our bonds can be sold, you can lend money to us, and the South is doing the same. And for a not in, inconsequential period, the South is winning the financial battle. They're regarded as more likely to win. It isn't until after Antietam that the financial markets in Europe start saying, hmm, it looks like the North is going to win, we're going to back them. So the international component is important even through the Civil War. Okay, great. We're going to open it up. I'm going to try to get a I'm going to cluster. And, uh, you know, when you get the microphone, uh, the stewards will walk around with the microphone. Just very briefly introduce yourself and make the question fairly brief. So let's see. We've got some hands. We'll take this hand right up here. Uh, Julia 
first, and then we'll go back to the guy in the white shirt back there. Yeah. yeah. And then uh, the woman right in front of him afterwards. And we'll take three questions, and then we'll do another round. Go ahead. Thanks. Is this on? No, it's not. The red? No. So many red things. <laughs> Is it? There you go. I guess so. Okay. Yeah. Julia Gray, IR department. Hi, Julia. Great talk, Jeff, as always. Um, so I had a question about this sort of aha moment of bailout that occurred when the federal unit was like, hey, like we can bail out these losers because that'll you know increase our credibility on global markets. So I wondered why you don't think that is happening to the same extent now in the Eurozone. Is it because Germany can kind of do fine on their own and they don't need any additional credibility? Is it because... I mean, I assume that those bailouts were condition-free bailouts, right? So is this now kind of an environment where to get the credibility you need these other things, and then everybody can see the other things not working or something else? Then we'll take the question back there. Yeah. Uh, Raman Ahmed for our management. Uh, thank you, Jeff. Very interesting talk so far. I had a question on uh, what if we didn't have a Eurozone at the moment? Would you still advocate a fiscal and monetary union or... Uh, would not be the case given all the troubles that come with it. And then there's a woman in white, uh, white blouse there. Yeah. <clears throat> um, my name's Carolyn. I studied economic history here at the LSE. Um, and my question is similar to the last one. Do you think that uh, the prosperity of the U.S. would be possible today without monetary union? Thank you. Okay, Jeff. Uh, so that last one is sort of a 200-year counterfactual. It's a little bit hard. There was a, uh, I think it was a special issue of the AER of counterfactual history, which was started with what if Columbus had not discovered America. It's a little hard to, to think that far back. I think that, that it, it's well, – let, let, me, let me address that by addressing the question. I'm going to go in, in reverse order, addressing at least part of the question and, and in full reverse order. So let me make an argument, Paul might agree with, on why – in some sense, it's hard to imagine that Europe could not have tried to create a common currency. And the argument is that it's very difficult to imagine, not in an economic sense, but in a political economy sense, a commercial union, a single market, with different competing currencies. The experience of the 1992-93 crisis was you had what was thought to be a hard peg to the Deutschmark, and then you had very divergent monetary conditions due to German policy after unification. And the response to that was that many of the peripheral European countries, like Spain, undertook a substantial devaluation. And when they did that, they flooded the German market with exports, or imports from the German standpoint. And at that point, there actually were substantial cries, in France in particular, for emergency protectionist measures against members of the single market. Right? And the argument made was, we have a common, a single market, which doesn't allow countries to impose trade barriers or export subsidies, but we know that a 10% devaluation is exactly equivalent to a 10% tariff and a 10% export subsidy. So if the Spaniards can devalue the peseta by 30% at will, then what kind of commercial union do we have? What kind of single market do we have? That's not sustainable. Another example is that of Mercosur. Mercosur was created in 1994 at the same time as NAFTA, and by more or less coincidence, in a couple of years before and in that, in that very year, both the two main members, Argentina and Brazil, adopted a hard peg to the U.S. dollar, one-to-one. <clears throat> -one. 
So a peso was a cruzeiro, or a real was a dollar. And trade between the two countries skyrocketed, more than quintupled in four years. Then, in 1978, both currencies are substantially overvalued. In early 1979, the Brazilians devalue very substantially, 20-30%, and flood the Argentine markets with Brazilian exports and cut off, largely, Argentine access to the Brazilian market at which point the Argentines threaten to impose protectionist barriers, and in fact the Brazilians are required to, to, to institute quote-unquote voluntary export restraints on their exports to Argentina. And for all intents and purposes, from that moment on, what happened afterwards is eventually the Argentines devalued by even more than the Brazilians. From that moment on, Mercosur was a dead letter because it was not feasible to have a functioning commercial or, or customs union if each member state could devalue at will. So there is a political economy argument for stabilizing currencies or a common currency in a common market, in a single market in particular. Right? So that, that's, that's one. The other argument is that the common currency will stimulate cross-border trade, investment, things like that. But, but I want to just emphasize that this first political economy argument because it really goes back to what happened in the 1990s. Germans, many Germans in particular, Germans in the export sector, after 1993 said, oh, wait a second, maybe having Spain outside of the Eurozone is not such a great idea, because then what's going to happen is there are going to be a whole bunch of weak currencies out there competing with us, and we don't like that. Okay? So um, you, you mentioned, I'm, I'm going to drag on because I do that. You mentioned the fiscal union. I'm going to say something that some people in the audience are not going to agree with, um, but I'm going to say it anyway. And that is that, in my opinion, a fiscal union is not necessary for a monetary union. Right? What is necessary, among other things, well, one thing that is necessary, and now we're talking about Europe, not the U.S., although the U.S. is a good example, is a credible no-bailout clause or no-bailout commitment. If every state in the U.S., for example, can borrow on its own hook and on its own credit with no expectation of a, national, of a federal bailout, then the states that are, not, that are running bad fiscal policies will be charged higher risk premia, as they are. In the midst of the crisis, the state of California was paying 7% to borrow, and the state of Massachusetts was paying 2.5%. California was not creditworthy. And that, that ex exercised a real break on California fiscal policy. The markets can operate to, to, uh, to discipline, if you will, the fiscal policy of subnational units if they know that there's not going to be a bailout. The problem in Europe from 1999 on was that the, the commitment not to bail out the member states was not credible. The markets didn't believe it. They were right, turned out, not to believe it. And, in fact, that was reflected in the risk premia. But if, the, if, if moving forward there is a reasonable risk premium attached so that Spain pays more to borrow than uh, Germany and Greece pays even more to borrow than Spain, then that exercises some discipline. So what, what is, I think, needed is some form of fiscal coordination, whether it's explicit or implicit, and we have that in the U.S. with, state, with automatic stabilizers and other things, but, but there is a widespread view in Europe that you have to have fiscal centralization to have a monetary union. That, I think, that's far too, uh, that's a bridge way too far, it's far too hard to achieve. We have not achieved it in the U.S. We do not have fiscal centralization in the U.S. The states do a lot of spending. States and municipal governments account for about half of all government spending. And that hasn't been a problem because they are borrowing on their own hook.
Julia, um, why was so the the big difference in eighteen eighty in seventeen eighty nine was the states were in default. They there wasn't a question of bailing them out. I mean they they had stopped paying their debts. What happened was not that the states were bailed out. It was the creditors that were bailed out. So what happened? And 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 it's interesting to look back on the debate. Some of you may have followed what's been happening with Argentina, where Argentina went through a default in two thousand one. The up until then, the biggest default in history. Um, there was a huge haircut. There was a settlement with the, with the creditors, which paid out about 40 cents on the dollar, I think. But there were a series of so-called vulture capitalists who bought these discounted bonds, the ones that the, the, it was up 5 to 7% of the total bonds, and then filed suit in New York court saying, we want to get paid full a, a dollar for a dollar, and they won. Um, so... What, the, what happened in the 1789 case, in the assumption case, was that these bonds were trading, in some case, five cents on the dollar, ten cents on the dollar. And they weren't being held, in most cases, by the people who originally floated the bonds. In some, so a lot of these were supplier credits. You know, you, so you got some farmer in western Massachusetts who had given 1,000 bushels of corn to the uh, Continental Army and be given a piece of paper saying, we owe you $1,000. And he had long since sold that piece of paper for $10 to someone. The guy who got the $1,000 back was the vulture capitalist of the day. And the opponents of Hamilton said, why are you bailing out all these speculators? You're not bailing out you know, the real states. You're bailing out speculators, people who bought this paper at a discount. And you're going to pay them $0.90 cents on a dollar for something they paid $0.10 cents for? Right? So the, it was highly controversial, but it wasn't controversial in the same way that debt is controversial in the European Union today. What's controversial today is the extent to which the debtors should be asked to bear the sacrifices, or, or let's put it this way, how the sacrifices should be divided. Up until now, virtually the entirety, with the exception of Greece, which completely unsustainable, with the exception of Greece, virtually the entirety of the cost of the debt has been borne by the debtors. And it is, to my mind, it's the only debt crisis I can think of in modern history in which there has been no debt restructuring. You go back to the Latin American debts of the 1970s, you go to the Asian crisis. In every instance, the debtors and the creditors fight it out, and there is some haircut. There is some response. Because, after all, as, you know, there are those, I won't put names to them, but there are those who say, you know, uh, why shouldn't we get full value for money? Well, the point is that when, yes, it's true that there was irresponsible borrowing, but there was irresponsible lending. Last time I looked, it took two sides for there, there to be irresponsible lending, and the borrowers bear some moral, ethical, and economic responsibility. But the creditors have, in fact, not paid really any of the price for, the, for the dealing with the debt overhang. And that is the enduring economic and political, primarily political, uh, circumstance that is hamstringing and gridlocking, if you will, uh, Europe, intra-European politics today. And that is what differentiates the Eurozone sovereign debt crisis from virtually every other debt crisis. No restructuring, all the cards in the hands of the creditors, all the bargaining power for a variety of reasons which we could talk about in the hands of the creditors, all the sacrifices being made by the debtors. So we're going to do like the academic version of American football's two-minute drill because we've got four minutes here. So I'm going to take three very quick questions, and you're going to have two minutes to respond. The first one is a woman in kind of pink right there. Um, and go ahead. 
my question is regarding U.S. When you were talking about debtor and creditor relations, U.S. itself being one of the largest debtors to countries like China, Japan, etc. And at the same time, uh, when you were talking about the relation, etc., and the rights and obligations of debtors and creditors, how does it make U.S. the trading currency and everyone wants to hold it, yet the Federal Reserve easily can... I mean, uh, alter their uh, rates, and how does that impact? Because on a larger, grander scale in the international perspective, I believe countries like, I come from Pakistan, countries like Pakistan, which are poor and developing, suffer immensely by such changes. Uh, could you please shed some light on this relationship? And I hate to say this, this is maybe my naivety, but I've heard that the U.S. can just print more money. How, how true is that? Okay, quickly to the guy in the black jersey right there, and then we'll go to the older student over here, James. Um, <laughs> no, no, okay. All right. LSE, uh, Politics and Philosophy. Thank you for the talk. Uh, you took us on an incredible whirlwind tour of the development of central banking, especially in the U.S., uh, but the door, story doesn't stop there, of course. I mean, there's a big section all the way up to where we are now, especially with the independence of central banks. Uh, where do you think central banking is going next? How do you think it's going to change as an institution to uh, tackle the issues at hand? Mm -hmm. And then one last question right down here in the front. Um, and Jeff, you might just have to like, engage in triage. So. <laughs> okay. um, Paul de Grau from the European Institute. Um, Jeff, I was surprised <clears throat> when you said that you don't really need fiscal union, and the U.S. is a good example of that. I knew you. I, I said yeah, Paul's yeah, not going to well, agree. I told you. you know, my powers of forecasting are The U.S. Impeccable. federal government uh, has a budget which, which represents 25% of U.S. GDP. The European Union has a budget representing 1% of uh, EU GDP. So you are saying the U.S. could have a good functioning monetary union if the federal government had a budget equal to 1% of U.S. GDP. The, US, the federal government had a budget equal to not much more than that in the 1870s and 1880s. And yet, yeah, I know, and, and yet we had a functioning fiscal union because the states were being charged differential rates on their borrowing. M most government spending up until the 1930s was state and municipal. And the states and municipalities actually spent a lot. And they borrowed on their own hook without an expectation of a bailout. And it was sustainable. But we can continue this some other time, because I, I knew you were going to disagree. I told you you were going to disagree. Um, but, th but think about the, the, the decentralized nature of state finances in the U.S. in the late 19th and early 20th century, before the federal government really started growing. Lots of crises. Yeah, yeah, lots of crises. We didn't have a central bank. We didn't have a central bank, so... Uh, okay, you, got, you have one minute, and you have two questions. Okay, okay, okay. Uh, uh, central bank independence. I think the two big issues for central banks are, first of all, what's sometimes called the third mandate. Central banks have two mandates, or most central banks have two mandates, monetary stability or price stability and full employment or macroeconomic conditions. The third mandate that has been added on now is financial stability, and that's a real challenge because it, in some sense, it runs in contradiction to the other two, and banks are trying to do, central banks are trying to do two contradictory things. Second big challenge is macroeconomic and monetary policy coordination. They did a great job in 2008, but moving forward, it's going to be much more difficult as monetary conditions diverge. Central banks are going to have a lot of trouble dealing with this monetary divergence. The, you asked a whole series of really interesting questions, which I can't address because Peter won't let me. Um, people hold dollars because 
it's the best game in town. Which would you rather hold, a dollar or a euro? A euro doesn't look like a very good bet. The yen doesn't look like a very good bet. There are only so many Swiss francs in the world. You don't want to... So the U.S. Part of it is the U.S. has the deepest and broadest financial markets in the world. And so even if you think that monetary conditions are going to go south, you can, you can protect yourself by hedging. There are big, very deep forward markets. So yes, maybe the dollar is going to decline over time, but you can protect yourself. So what you can't protect yourself is, is easily against the decline or change in the value of the, of the, um, of the yen or the, the, or the euro. Yes, you're right. The Fed today, as Ellen Ray exaggerates, I think, but the Fed, Fed policy has a powerful impact on the rest of the world. And the Fed now knows that. They won't admit it publicly because it is not part of the mandate and Congress hates the idea that we're making monetary policy with the rest of the world in mind because Congress doesn't think there is a rest of the world out there. And because the rest of the world doesn't vote in congressional elections, what do you expect? So, so the Fed will never admit that it's making monetary policy with the rest of the world in mind, but there is no question that Janet Yellen and her colleagues are deeply concerned with the impact of potential increases in interest rates on the emerging markets. Now, they had no choice, really. I mean, even if they had left interest rates there, they were. The collapse of commodity prices was going to lead to the crisis that the emerging markets are faced. The, the very small increase in interest rates and the expectation of further increases are really hammering a lot of the emerging markets, including Pakistan. Um, but... I don't think you can blame the Fed for that. The Fed has to, it's, it's just like the ECB. The ECB is making monetary policy for a highly disparate monetary union. The Fed is making monetary policy for the U.S. Whatever the U.S. does is going to have an impact on the rest of the world. So if the U.S. were running a, you know, back in the day when we were running a looser monetary policy, people complained that we were exporting inflation. Now as we start to tighten, people say we're exporting our deflation. They're, they're you know, in some sense... The rest of the world is stuck with the U.S., just like the U.S. is stuck with the rest of the world. And that's why I say, going back to my previous answer, that one of the gravest challenges, not just for central bankers, but for economic policymakers more generally, is trying to find some manner of functioning macroeconomic policy coordination, because countries are now subject to massive externalities being imposed on them by other countries' policies, and we have to find some way. I think the world, the world economy, the contemporary economic order, can only move forward if some way is found to deal with those externalities in a collaborative and cooperative way. That is great. Tom Brady couldn't have done it any better.